thank you for joining us for the Elevation podcast series presented by the Colorado PGA. My name is Holly Champion, and I'm the Colorado PGA's Education Director. This week, we will be elevating our understanding of managing performance thanks to the help of our two guests. I'm joined by our co-host, Leighton Smith, PGA Director of Instruction at Leighton Smith Golf and the Colorado PGA's 2017 Player Development Award recipient. Leighton is a passionate instructor of both youth and adult golfers who he helps discover their true potential. Our guest this week is author, speaker, and licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Brett McCabe. For over 10 years, Brett has become a trusted resource for amateur, collegiate, and professional golfers on the PGA, LPGA, and Corn Ferry Tours. In 2018 alone, his professional clients won 11 times worldwide. Additionally, Dr. McCabe is the sports and performance psychologist for the University of Alabama's athletic department, providing services to all sports, including the 2016 and 2018 national championship football teams. Brett is no stranger to sports himself. As an undergraduate student at LSU, he was a four-year letterman on the baseball team and member of two national championship teams. Please join me in enjoying this episode of the Elevation Podcast. Good morning. Welcome, Dr. Brett McCabe, Leighton Smith. Thank you both for joining us for the Elevation Podcast Series. We're going to discuss a little bit about how to master performance. Um, Brett is an expert in performance of a whole lot of different arenas. So, Brett, we'll start you off. Kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in managing performance and how you got to where you are. Yeah, and thanks for having me. And it's, it's good to chat with you guys. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist um, who was a former college athlete, and I was not a very psych guy. Um, I knew it was important. I kind of grew up with it being important, but I didn't really understand it. Um, and I didn't go to I didn't go to college to be a psychologist. I went to college to, you know, find something that resonated with me. And I guess I did find it. Um, it was because I was struggling as an athlete. I had had some injuries. I had had some reduced performance. Um, and and it really was bigger of a reflection of the injury was it was highlighting an issue that I was one of those guys that did everything right, but never had the success. And that was hard because I did everything right. And I assumed that success would follow. And the hard thing was it wasn't following. And I watched my colleagues, my teammates and my elite players who had this edge to them and they had this fire inside their belly and their soul. And they, they found a way to compete and make it work. And I really struggled with my way. Um, and it wasn't until I got injured and I realized I had a disadvantage because of my, my, injury and I lost some function that the, I figured the only way I could play was I was had to maximize and learn how to compete better mentally. And so I started working with a guy in Baton Rouge um, who taught me some things and I realized that it really opened the door for me and it gave me an opportunity to compete better. After I had my season that I had a fantastic year um, I changed my major to psychology. Uh, it was a semester from graduating in business, changed my major to psychology, added another year and then went to grad school and, and, uh, became a clinical psychologist. Took me six years, um, to finish my graduate training and doctorate work. <clears throat> and, uh, I did that, but I, I focused on, I focused on a, an element of psychology that I thought was important for human behavior, which was um, really in the injury side, the medical 
burden that we all face, you know, people who have chronic pain or arthritis or diabetes, and what's the psychological burden that comes with that? And how does psychology impact our health behavior? And so I I always had an interest in injury rehabilitation of athletes. And I went to, I did my internship, which in psychology is like a one-year residency. So I went to um, Brown Medical School and did that. And when I was in Providence, 9-11 happened and I had two small kids. I had a four-year-old and a four-month-old or five-year, five and one by the time it was over. And I wanted to come back to Baton Rouge, but the job market was terrible because post 9-11. And in psychology, they really want you to do a two-year fellowship. So it essentially results in like a three-year residency. But I, being kind of always the different guy who swims upstream, I looked at it and said, well, if I can make a living without having to do it, that I want to make a living without having to do it. And because um, it's not mandatory, it was just suggested. It's kind of like the the backflow of people, right? And so I went to work in the pharmaceutical spectrum um, and I worked in the industry for eight years doing research and education. And, and that gave me a really cool perspective to look at performance from a corporate perspective, to see how decisions are made on billion dollar products and what's the high level you know, executive thinking that goes on there. That job brought me to Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, as an avid golfer, I just started helping players that would call and say, hey, look, you know, I I know you're a psychologist. I know you played in college baseball. Can you help me? You know, I can't afford so-and-so. I can't afford this other leader, but can you help me? So I would do it for free for a couple of years. And then I got to a spot where I was like, I need to charge a little bit. And I charged a little bit. And then I got to a spot where I needed to make a transition in the business because I was so busy, Um, probably because I was so cheap. But that just led to better and better players players having more and more success led me to players on the PJ tour. And so I've always taken the perspective of, Hey, look, I'm not a golfer. I do play golf. I'm a low handicap. I play as much as I can, but I'm going to approach it from what I did as a baseball player and very successfully with a program that was very, very successful. And we're going to apply it that way. And that's how I got in the performance realm. So I come at performance from a multidisciplinary team approach. I love working with the coaches. I love working with the swing coaches. I love working with the putting coaches, the trainer, the nutritionist. That's the world that I know. Um, working at Alabama, I'm the sports psychologist for the University of Alabama. So I'm constantly in, in multidisciplinary team meetings and relationships with the athletic trainer, the strength and conditioning coach, the, the you know nutritionist, the massage therapist, the academic counselor to try to help a player perform better. And um, so that's just kind of how I bring my approach forward. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, Leighton, I know you're a big fan of Brett's work. Um, You mentioned that you've been following him on Instagram and social media for a little while and have talked with him about how to improve your coaching work. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you like best and how you have used it or plan to use it moving forward as an instructor. Absolutely. So thank you, Doc, for for being on the podcast with us. Um, So my my introduction to to Brett happened at a teaching coaching summit a few years ago that we had in the Colorado PGA section. And at the time, I don't know when you had published it, but you had the book, um, The Mindside Manifesto. And so I I recently at that point had just kind of launched my own teaching coaching business and I've always been fascinated with the mental side, but one of the, the biggest things that kind of got me hooked and I would say motivated was, was your book and how the Mindside Manifesto 
basically, as you say, you know, believing in something so strongly that, that you're willing to declare publicly. And that, for me, was right at the point in my career where I was kind of taking the leap to say, look, I, I believe, you know, that I am a good coach and that I want to grow my business. And that, so your, your book there and just your approach and whatnot helped me kind of form my manifesto, so to speak of what I believe in, how I want to coach, how I want to be known relationally. Um, and that's where it's, you know, your, your work that, and even the things you post on social media, staying in touch, and obviously you're working with tour players, um, has been just awesome. And I think that first it, it's so needed, but I obviously love as a coach, the, the technical side of the golf swing and of the game, but I mean, you know, we, I'd be so dismissed to say if that is even the priority. It's like we got to manage that. But um, and I believe my experience so far in my career has been so focused on that, which is helpful in a major tool. But now it's like to apply it to even buy, get the buy in from my clients, whether the juniors or competitive players. You know, that's what's like the content that you created has, has definitely helped with that. And even your your own podcast um so yeah it's, it's an honor to have you on the show and i look forward to the conversation oh thank you and you know i think i think you bring up a good point right is you know great coaches you know we want to evaluate coaches and say oh the technical proficiency that he or she has or their ability to diagnose or whatever well we know from medical literature where we look at um and it's an old study and i can't remember where it is but it's a study that they looked at the proficiency and the bedside manner of physicians so if you rate proficiency of high and they have you know bedside manners high or low who has higher malpractice rates well you would think that the person who has the lowest proficiency is probably going to have the highest malpractice rates but it's actually it, it's actually a little different it's the fact that the people who have the highest proficiency but the bad bedside manner team tend to get sued more often or have more problems because they lack the personal skills that what we have oftentimes called the soft skills they're really not soft they're connective skills right the first platform of of being a great catalyst or a great coach is that your connection to people matters the most now if you don't have the ability to to communicate the technical information people are going to leave you eventually but they're still going to like to hang out with you but if you've got if you know why the club is in the wrong spot but you are a total a-hole then people are going to leave you too they're not going to stick around okay and they're going to leave with a bad taste in their mouth and it doesn't matter how good you are and you know you see that on tour right i mean if we look at the greatest teacher in the united states and butch Harmon, you know i'll talk to coaches like well you know technically you know look the dude knows his technical proficiencies inside and out he has the most brilliant bedside manner when he's working with his players he can you know he can laugh and cut up with one person and be relaxed and on the next person he can be stoic he can be strong he can be stern he can be accountable there's a orthopedic surgeon who's an LSU grad, by the way, an LSU med student um, who was an athlete at LSU, but he's now based in Birmingham a little bit and is Dr. James Andrews, who's really the, one of the Mount Rushmore's of orthopedic surgery. And if you're around his clinic, what you notice is that all of his providers are, they're, they're really, I'm going to say this in a way, but they dress a certain way. They present themselves a certain way. Their bedside manner is through the roof. They're active and engaged in the community. Dr. Andrews' ability to sit bedside with somebody and be a country boy from Faraday, Louisiana, and talk about cooking on his, you know, 
his cast iron pot and what are we boiling today? And then on the next person to be able to have a conversation with an NFL football player and talk about with the athletic trainer and the CEO of the company and be able to say, here's what's going on and here's the proficiency and the limitation and then be able to immediately switch over to, hey, look, we're going to get you back out there, you know, frogging. We're going to get you going out there gigging. Okay. And it's that ability. And when I spent some time with him, you know, I asked him, I said, what are the foundations of you being great? And he's like, well, first thing is never badmouth another practitioner. And the reason for that is when you went to that practitioner, you went to them with the fullest idea and belief. Now they may have screwed up the knee, but I'm really good at fixing other people's mistakes. And that's okay. That's medicine. What's the same way in, in golf, right? I hear all the time from coaches like, well, they screwed them up. Well, did they? Did they? Or maybe the information just didn't. Maybe we didn't do Like we all had teachers in school who taught math and we went, I just can't follow them. Like I just can't. And then somebody else comes in behind them and just has this amazing ability to shine a light on exactly what you need to do. Um, you know, I think it's 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 one of those things that we have to really understand our connection to people and understanding who they are. And then I'm not saying that we need to be a chameleon. But we need to adjust and adapt and find out what they are and how they communicate and how they work. And I think by doing that, people are going to walk away going, man, that, that's, a, that, that's a great coach. You know, you know and, and, and it's funny, right? I mean, you know, as a coach, can, a great coach should be able to make fun of themselves. A great coach should be able to say, oh, I screwed that up. And I always tell my players, look, we're going to try something. I'm probably going to screw you up. So just hang with me for a minute. And when you say that, people, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, that was one of the first things I learned when I was, you know, dabbling in teaching as an assistant is all of the great instructors can take the same message and say it 12 different ways to 12 different people and get the same thing across. I mean, it's being able to just communicate. It has very little to do with your acumen in that particular lesson or how much training, how many certifications you have. But if you can communicate the same thing in so many different languages, so to speak, to someone else, then you're going to be a good instructor and people are going to keep coming to you because they can understand you. And that's why I, I'm a very strong believer that your best teacher should teach your beginners. Because if not, then they lose the ability to communicate to many different people. If you can't communicate with somebody who's never played the game and get them to understand what you're doing, and you can't communicate to a, a five-year-old kid to make it fun, and you can't communicate to a young lady who's coming out there for the first time who's intimidated by being around a golf course and intimidated by people in their friend group that are better than them and you can't communicate with somebody who who is also a really good player and you got to learn and that's what the best are because i think too often we assume that the beginners should have beginning coaches oh my gosh no it should be the opposite i mean think about it if you're learning to fly an airplane do you want a beginning instructor to teach a beginning pilot no, I want the pilot that's sitting in the seat next to me that's got 50,000 hours in the air, right? And so that's that human connection of, you know, we, we can break it all down. And I'll go back to being uh, the, the surgeons for a minute because I did a, a call for, the, for Dr. Andrews Fellows this morning on this exact topic. But when I, I had my left hip replaced almost three years ago, 
by one of his physicians. He's an older gentleman and he's very stoic and he's very funny. And he's like, Brett, I know you're a psychologist. You shouldn't be nervous about this. I'm like, I'm telling you I'm nervous because I am a psychologist. I know what I feel. Right. And so we kick it around and laugh, but he walks in and he'd look at my leg and he'd say, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. And he walked in right before surgery and just put a mark on my leg. I mean, I had one x-ray. He had enough information there from years and years of experience to know exactly what he needed to do. Right. He didn't need 15 MRIs. He didn't need all that. He knew what it was. And the reason why I went to him is buddies of mine that are physical therapists in town said, look, if you want a left hip replacement, there's one guy in town to do it. I treat his patients. He never misses ever, you know, and he flat out told me I've had three major complications and he listed them right before the surgery. And I've told him, I said, dude, he's a member of our club. I see him all the time. I'm like, dude, before you retire, you're doing my right one. He's like, well, it's not there yet. I said, it will be. I said, we will falsify our record on health insurance to make it happen. I want you to do my surgery. And his thing is, but that's years of experience, right? And he could have a conversation with me, like knowing me and knowing that I work in his fellows and I'm, you know, he'd walk in, he could be a little bit of a jerk to me and laugh. And I said, Hey doc, you know, can I, he goes, Brett, are you that slow that I've told you two things that you can't do? And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And he's like, okay. And then I'd watch him talk to somebody else and he'd have this calm demeanor and he'd be like, we're going to, but he could go at me because I could go back at him. Right. Mm -hmm. And so great coaches know their people better than anybody else. There's a, a, and this is being a psychologist. We fall into this too. But my advisor, one of my advisors I had in my first year class, we're sitting there taking psychopathology, tough class. I mean, you're knowing the, it's tough. And she told a story and she said, look, she said, I used to work for a major medical school in the country and I was responsible for helping train the the fellows and the residents. And she said, you know, you go in and you watch them doing a full assessment. They come it, they give it to you and they talk about it's this, it's this, their HbA1c is this, their LDL, HEL is this, their sodium is this, all this other stuff. And she said, they give you this brilliant, brilliant recommendation. And she said, I asked the guy one day, I said, what's your patient's name? And he went, I don't know. She said, I failed him. And it kind of goes into knowing there, there was a, another psychiatrist that I went to a grand rounds on. And hopefully people who are listening to this understand where I'm going. I'm not just telling stories. And he had a, a fellow and you gotta understand sometimes in psychiatric facilities, the center hub, it hubs out. So you've got the station in the middle and they can have all the rooms around. So that way you can get to any room you need to, when you need to. And he said, they're in the emergency room for psychiatry, psychiatric emergency room. Patient comes in frequent flyer in there a lot. Patient has paranoid schizophrenia. When they go off their meds, they get paranoid and it becomes an issue and they get brought in. And young resident walks in there. He's all proud, you know, white jacket. I'm a doctor now, you know, walks in and talks to the patient. And the patient just goes, I mean, just goes off the charts. Has to be sedated. Okay. Comes back in and the old psychiatrist is sitting in there. He's like, hey, what happened in there? And you work in those settings that happens, okay? You're dealing with people who sometimes have thinking, um, you know, disorders of thought. And and so you're sitting there talking and he goes, I just asked him if he was taking his medicine. And he said, I can't believe you'd be so upset about that. And he said, why did he come in? 
Well, the complaint was that the FBI had bugged his phones and was listening as his neighbors. And he said, and you asked him if he's taking his medicine? Why didn't you ask him? Are you probably not sleeping, are you? If you're, you're probably worried about every, you got to go to where your clients are. You know, and I do clinics for like, I love going to do ladies clinics because um, I, I just love the interaction. The questions are awesome. They're fun. Usually there's some alcohol flowing. They let it rip worse than the men's groups do every time. And we're sitting there and the number one questions that come up is, hey, doc, what do I do about that hole that I can't get over the ditch in two? You know, they just keep telling me to hit it. And I just keep hitting in that damn ditch. I'm like, why don't you lay up in front of the ditch? Really? Should I do that? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's like, we need to go to where our clients are, right? Like, you know, we, we've got to do things. And I think in our industry from teaching and from coaching, and it doesn't matter how many buildings and how many beautiful things you have on the wall with all that technology, which is great. I think we should all have it. But can your player understand how the ball gets in the air? Okay. Right. Um, can your player understand how to make something work? Um, can your player understand, listen, the game is hard and you watch players play really good and you watch players on tour and they, the men and women on tour hit great shots. And, and, but that's that week. And what's reality is this. And that's why I think it's so important for PGA professionals to play with their members. And I hear a lot from members or professionals like, I just don't want them to think I play bad. No, please do. Please do. Because they need to see humanity. You know, they need to see you being vulnerable and it's okay if you're in a group and you uh, you know get mad and uh, uh, good friends with mark blackburn uh, mark and i play golf quite regularly and very esteemed instructor and, and sometimes in our group he'll throw a club and i remember the first time we ever did it we were in a group and we were playing with one of our tour players that we worked with together and the player would get mad and mark goes watch this and he hits a bad shot and he just chunks the nine iron and the player was kind of looking at him and he goes, you don't think we all get frustrated? He said, I wanted you to see that we all struggle. Now, Mark was like, okay, I don't normally do that. And, you know, sorry, you shouldn't throw clubs and all that. And I said, no, I understood what you were doing. Right. And it's so funny when Mark plays in our group, he plays in our group almost exclusively um, because he likes the guys that, that we play with. But he's like, you know, he'll blade a shot out of the bunker and we'll be like, hey, you know, there's these great videos on our club website about how to hit balls out of a bunker. And he's like, shut up, shut up, you know, and but that's cool, right? That's the vulnerability because we can go at him. He can come, but that's he's knowing our group, but he's brilliant with juniors and he's brilliant with women because he's also can talk and he's got that British accent. And, and that's what I want people to realize is a coach is starts a catalyst starts with being a connected human being to people. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good stuff. What would you say? And again, it's different depending on where the golfer is in the journey, whether beginner, you know, intermediate, advanced, tour player, whatnot. How would you say you can manage the, I mean, at some point it's a dilemma, but the process between technical improvement and, you know, building technical skill, let's say getting the club more in front of you and then you manage it. You know? Well, yeah, but you got to show them that success is more than talent. Okay, so my success formula that I teach is that in the first column is talent and skill. Okay, there's no doubt. Listen, let's look at basketball for a minute. Kevin Durant is an incredibly talented player. 
Okay. You can't be six foot 10 and shoot like that and not be talented. Now that talent wasn't, he may have been born in a certain way, but it's bigger than that. He's worked his tail off in the gym. He's got skill development. Okay. There's factors that, but his skills are really good. If we look at a player and, and, and I always tell players this, if you, if you go out and play with tour players and I go play with my tour players quite often, you watch how they they're pitching and chipping. The crispness of that is ridiculous. Okay. There's a difference. I mean, um, you know, the, the, you know, you go out and watch a guy throw a baseball. Okay. Like I did the 94 just comes right out of their hands. So much easier. Okay. You can look at their shoulder differential and realize how broader their shoulder is. Okay. Those are some physical skills and talents, right? That's just one factor though. The second factor is the ability to apply that skill and talent under pressure where it matters. There's unbelievable kids growing up that can bang balls on a range. You know what? Growing up, they used to call those driving ranges where you, you know, or batting cages where you put tokens in and you would look like a superstar. That's not where the game is played. Okay. You got to learn to apply it under pressure. You can be the greatest astronaut in the world, but when you got a rocket on your butt and sending you up to space, how are you going to function when it matters? Okay. So, in other industries, we train people under chaos as much as we possibly can. The third factor is, do you have the mental flexibility to deal with good, bad? Do you have the ability to take a, I think there's seven levels of performance. I think there's very bad, bad, not good, good uh, average, good, better, best. Can you take a not good day and make it an average day? Well, you know, Holly, you were a college player. You know, it really meant a lot for your coach to take a not good day and make it average. But most players go, not good. Well, why isn't it my best? Well, your best is like a once in a lifetime experience. That's not an every day. So that mental flexibility is required to go, it's not personal. The last factor is luck, okay? Players win tournaments, balls hit trees and run out in the fairway. Balls hit, start going towards the the you know the 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 rough and it rolls out you hit a chunk wedge on accident it rolls out to the hole other days you hit it perfectly right next to the hole it spins off the front edge of the green okay it's managing that and having the mental flexibility so what i tell all my players is like yeah, your talent is great okay it's fantastic i can build a car that looks beautiful in the showroom and it falls apart as minutes put under stress or it doesn't have the the pickup it doesn't have the ability to man okay we're building resourceful individuals. Now, the problem is most of us focus on the first and fourth factor, talent and luck, and they ignore the middle two. So as a coach, we've got to sit there when somebody's struggling with their skills and talent and we're hitting, they're hitting balls is to not rush in on them and go, okay, do this, fix this. Oh, did did you do this? Instead, teaching them to say, hey, look, work through this. Work through the frustration right now. And this is what's so critical about you guys as a great catalyst is coaching parents too, to say, Hey, look, you know, cause I get texted all the time. Oh my God, we're on the seventh hole. This is just awful. I've never, I'm like, my gosh, it's gotta be perfect. Like this is the greatest learning for your kid right now. And so I always tell my parents, if you play in a junior tournament and the first thing you do after a round is hurry up, get in the car, find a driving range and call your coach, you're failing your kid. That kid should sit there, not out of punishment, but should sit there, order lunch at the restaurant, sit down, eat something, talk to your friends that came in who just shot 64 and go, dude, 64. That's phenomenal. How did you play? I just had a tough day. I just, 
tough day. Okay. Nobody's going to remember you had a tough day. They're going to remember that you were the one that was sitting there and could own a good day or bad day. Because then you become a superstar. And as parents, if we want to hurry up and shelter them out of there and call the coach and fix it, what you're telling your kid is you don't trust your kid well enough to find a way through it. Okay, so what are they going to do when they're out there playing by themselves? They don't have a, a mom and dad sitting outside the ropes giving them signals on how to fix it. They need to learn to correct it. And they need to learn to deal with a bad shot isn't life or death. I played with my tour players on Tuesday. And I played with one of my guys who... So I, I played with um, Patton Kazar, who I played with many times. And I played with Brian Harmon. And Brian and I rip on each other all the time. And the first thing he says when he gets out of the car is, yeah, nice shorts. And I'm like, well, if they were your shorts, they wouldn't cover my rear end because he's short, right? And so we just go at each other nonstop. So we get up on the first hole, and I'm nervous. Okay, I could feel it because I, I wasn't nervous about playing with Patton. We were playing with another tour player who I didn't know and didn't care. What a, but I knew Brian was going to rip on me. So I'm like, okay, here we go. And I'm a two handicap or lower, and I can hit it pretty good. And so – um I get up there and I hit my drive and my drive is like 25 yards past him. Adrenaline hit, right? I mean, I just pured this thing. And Brian's like, yo. And now he has to give me three shots in the bet. It was just, we're playing nine holes. So he's like, yo, whoa, 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 whoa. Now he's starting to bitch. And then he hits a shot on the green and I literally hit it to an inch. And he's like, this ain't fair. This isn't fair. And then on the next drive, it was like I had to hit a four iron into the window par three and I hooked it in the water. And he goes, oh, there he is. Okay. And I was like, but. You know, you gotta you gotta put yourself in that uncomfortable situation. It makes me better. You know, I, am I supposed to play like Patton and Br- they both won two times on tour? Hell no, no. But I can learn from them. And Brian was like, "Dude, your games, you're actually pretty good." He goes, "It's cool to watch." I'm like, "Thank you." And he's like, "Fun." He goes, "You're still your shorts are still ugly." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know. You're still short. So, what do you want me to do?" But it's that attitude right we've gotta we gotta allow ourselves to be uncomfortable be i was nervous i was freaking nervous because here i am in my mind i was like hurry up and hit this shot so that he's not looking i know i can drive a golf ball i know i can hit wedges we were playing we're in the middle of fairway he goes oh i know mccabe ain't gonna hit this one close i've watched his his iron play and that's just how he is and I got up there and I stuffed it because I was like, uh-uh, you got to do that stuff. We, and, and I mean, look, I didn't post it because we only played eight holes, not nine, but it was still good. I mean, it was still fun to do it. And you got to put yourself out there. That's awesome. What would you say for for your own golf game? What's it like as a psychologist? Like if you're going, let's just say, I don't know how much you practice or, or whatnot, but it, let's say you're, you're practicing warming up in like, it's off your ball striking's off you just know you don't have your rhythm what's it so in the mind of a psychologist on the range are you thinking you know what's that like because for an instructor if i'm teaching all day and i'm in that mindset you know it can quickly just get too technical and like it not help myself and yeah. if i'm in a healthy mindset it would be dude you got this just chill let's just do i think do. when i first started coaching I started taking on the burdens of every player I struggled with and that struggled. And I'd started going, Oh man, they struggle with that. And I started being more aware of it. It, It's an effect that they see in medical school where you start thinking as a physician or a treatment person that you have every illness that's coming in there. Okay. Um, but what I do, you know, I play in a regular group. We talk a lot of junk. We, we, we have a game, you know, most people play three putt snake, you know, but we actually call them whipped creams. Um, and the reason we call them whipped creams is in the bet 
even if you're losing the hole, one of your partner three putts, it's like getting whipped cream on your Sunday. It's like it made it a little bit better. Um, and what we do is we do cumulative. So if I have one whipped cream, then the next one is worth two dots. The next one's worth three dots. The next one's four dots. And then we do the opposite for birdies so that it can even out. That created a lot of stress for me early. And I noticed that, you know, I would get a little bit more cautious on my first putt. Um, I've had to face them just like everybody else. Um, I'm a good putter. I don't make a lot, but I'm a good putter. My speed's always good. I just don't seem to make putts. Um, and so I have to fight that. Um, I think, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I, we were playing in a tournament one year. We had a practice round and it's a big money game practice round. And um, I, I had like four buried lies in a bunker. Okay. Well, first I shouldn't hit him there. Okay. But I was frustrated. And as I'm walking, I would just take my sandwich, I toss it on the ground and throw it. And um, and we're in the a couple days later, we're in the match play. We're watching it. We're out of it at this point. My father-in-law and I are sitting in the cart. We got our sandals on and we're watching the tournament having a drink. And some guy pulls up next to me. And this is before I'd kind of gotten more known about what I do. And guy pulls up to me and goes, hey, you're that psychologist dude, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, man, I heard you through your club. That's a bad reflection of your job. And I went, dude, seriously? I'm like, I'm out here having a good time. And first yeah. of all, if you had four or five buried lies, you would too, right? Um, you know, look, I, I, a couple of years ago, we were playing in a match play. I was three up with four to play. I lost the match. Came in and people are like, you're better than that. And I'm like, dude, hold out twice from the fairway. What am I supposed to do? Yes, I got nervous. Yeah. I mean, so it's kind of like looking at somebody who makes a bad bet on the golf course and they're a financial advisor. It's like, you know better than that. Right. I think... I think sometimes that bothered me. I, what I've had to do is I don't warm up a whole lot anymore because I, I found that I'm better if I just take what I have and trust what I have versus finding what I have. Um, I do a lot more. I play a lot more and practice a lot more with my wedges and my, my putter. I'm not very good with strategy on the golf course because I hit the ball a long way, even at 47. Um, I tend to get overly aggressive on par fives. I make more birdies with wedges in my hands, but it's hard to hit a wedge in when you've got a seven iron in on a par five. And it's hard to be like, well, I'm a wedge this day. I mean, and so I tend to, I, I have to get better there, but I love the game. I love the camaraderie of the game. I love the challenge of the game. Um, I don't understand why my handicap drops when I lose a lot of money in Wolf. Um, I still don't understand the game of Wolf. You can shoot even par and lose a hundred bucks. I don't get that. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure how it works. Um, whoever invented that game has got a sick and twisted mind, but I'll be playing it tomorrow morning and ready to go again. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's tough. So, um, but I love it. I mean, it, it, look, the game is knowing what, you know, knowing things ultimately when you go out there, I'm Brett and I just play the game and have a good time. Um, so, so Brett, we've talked about a couple of different things that you say you use in your practice to help your athletes. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot about communication. We talked about those four pieces that, you know, make up a really good plan. Um, how would you coach a coach to become more practiced at identifying how to best help their clients? You know, obviously you are an expert of experts in this. How do you 
talk to someone who's a newer teacher that says, you know, this is how you identify if you have a communication problem, or this is how you identify how best to help that person coming to see you. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's a little bit of our catalyst school, which we'll talk about. But the first thing every player and every coach, every coach should do is write down their philosophy every year. Okay. And and I call it the philosophy binder, which is it starts, it should start out with a piece of paper. What do I believe in? You know, what do I believe about the swing? Write it down. Okay. What do I believe about mental training? Write it down. What do I believe about nutrition? Write it down. What do I believe about, you know, setting up tournaments, whatever your focus is. And then those should fall into binders as you refine them. And then next year, you're going to have a new binder and probably 90% of that old binder is going to pull forward. But during the course of the year, as you're collecting information, you keep adding to it, but you don't just change everything and go, oh my God, today I just went to a workshop on how to do this and I'm going to change everything I'm doing. Okay. That's a mistake. So what you do is you take that information and you put it in your binder and you evaluate it. You may try it out with a player or two. You go, oh, this is a pretty interesting shift. And, and then you may shift your philosophy. It's the same way about how do you s- structure practice. I think too, you should always coach in front of um, other coaches and you should film yourself coaching. It's a trick that we use in, in psychotherapy where you film yourself um, doing therapy. And what you'll realize is that if you have somebody who's um, depressed, you'll start slouching in your chair and somebody's anxious, you're up on them. And that feedback is is important. I think every coach should walk around with index cards. I mean, even five by seven index cards and while they're watching a player, just take a couple notes because our natural response is we never want a player to leave not feeling better. So we overcoach them versus letting it play itself out sometimes and then offering them a piece of information when their brain's not scrambled. Um, and so co- and filming yourself coach would be great and having feedback. I think you need to have colleagues and critiquers. Um, I believe there should be five people in your life. You should have competitors, confidence builders, um, uh, colleagues that are people who walk the walk with you. You should have challengers and critiquers. And so you should have people around that is like, look, I probably would have done this or that. You know, when we're coaching, we see things based on our intuition that's developed over years of coaching that somebody else may not go to to right then. So as long as you have a a framework and formula, um, I really hate when I see coaches on their phones while they're teaching. Okay. That's why I believe that every coach, every, every, every club, if you coach, you should have um, two people that they normally will not hire. Um, You should have an administrator. Okay. Who books your appointments who handles your phone calls with your clients, who sets up time for you to talk. And I'll explain why in a minute. And two, you should have a social media person. Um, I can't stand to see coaches sitting on the things doing their own social media. My daughter has her master's in social media marketing, believe it or not. And, you know, I've told all my buddies in the golf industry and I'm on the board at my club. I am fighting like hell to put a full-time social media person. Why? Your job is not to be thinking what your social media content should be. That's the job of somebody who walks up, catches you in the real world and goes, hey, I got five or 10 clips out of this. Thank you. Hey, I'm giving a couple clinics today and they're just going to be there and they know how to do all the filming. The administrative aspect of it is you, you pay somebody 10 bucks an hour. Okay. 15 bucks an hour. That's minimum wage in some states. Okay. You pay them 15 bucks. An hour, just raise your rates 15 bucks. I know it sounds crazy, but if, if, if I'm teaching eight hours a day, okay. And I'm like what I do, I'm in session eight hours a day and I get calls. Hey, I want to schedule an appointment. It's going to be 10 hours later before I ever get back to them. And I'm not going to catch them when they're ready. 
right? When am I going to catch them? I'm going to catch them when they're busy. So now they're going to call me back. When are they going to call me back? When I'm in session with somebody again. So now the alternative is I'm sitting there on my phone texting somebody. They're not getting my best. They're not prepared. But if you have a, a, a scheduler, and I know everybody listening is going, my, my money's tight. If you want to make more money, invest in people who make you more money. Okay. Every one of us listening to this golf, if you're a general manager or you're a head pro at a club and you need, listen, social media is the easiest way to market. It's not about, hey, look at me. I'm social media man or social media woman. It's showing people what life at your club would be like in real world. Okay. You don't need the special lighting. You don't even need special cameras anymore with the iPhone 11. Cameras better than the things you can buy. Okay. So go out there, take some pictures, edit it, make it look good, put it out there. Let your members know, hey, I'm going to post this on social. Wonderful. And show them what it's like. Show, you know, show a 30-second clip of you guys coaching young players. You think parents wouldn't love to see that? And when you take those two things off of our plate, the head chef at a restaurant doesn't do the dishes. They don't prep the onions. They build, you have a sous chef that's preparing you to be ready for the chef to do their work, okay? And these are some things in business to be a better catalyst. We have to get rid of the things that limit us from what our job is, okay? When you look at big budget companies, yes, they get very diluted based on too many layers of bureaucracy. But what happens is working at Alabama, Coach Saban is not responsible. He, he may know what's going on with the tickets. He may know what's going on with the, the luxury boxes, but he's not the one making the phone call asking for the donations. Good point there. That's guys right where I'm at too with my business. I'm like, it's all of us in the summer. It's like exactly what you said. I mean, I, I can get back to them at the end of the day and then they're ready to call me the next day. And it's, it's the, circle. So the, the greatest thing I did was my wife took over my business seven years ago and she did it because people would text. Me. If you text me asking for an appointment, I'm terrible at it. She gets you on my schedule immediately, even if you just want to talk to me for 10 minutes to find out if I'm the right fit. It's on my schedule. And I just look at my schedule and go, oh, that's who I'm talking to. When I call my buddy who's an internal medicine physician, I don't talk to him about scheduling an appointment. If, if I call him and say, hey, buddy, I need to come in and see, he's like, call the front desk. I'll tell him you're calling. That's because he's in there working with a patient. Last thing he needs to be doing is thinking, what now, when can I fit bread into my schedule? And we have to treat ourselves in the coaching industry the same way. You know, we are in the customer service business. And if we have an issue of being late for appointments, not looking prepared, not knowing their names, not making that process, I hate online scheduling. I know it sounds like a great idea. I hate it. It's, it's, I hate calling a company that it's press one, press four, plus eight, press 12, press like, I love it when somebody picks up the phone and says, Hey, and you're like, Oh my God. Oh God. I am sorry. Hey, I'd like to get an appointment with, Oh yeah, absolutely. Let me take care of that. Boom. Now you're starting to build self con you're, you know, you're building that. It's unbelievable. Like I had an issue with Dillard's, the department store that they didn't mail out a gift card. I bought my mom for mother's day and I called yesterday and it said, press one for customer service. It went, bing, bing, hello, hey. And I was like, oh my God, there was no on hold. And it got taken care of in five minutes. I was like, this is the greatest thing. Thank you so much. It's customer service. Like, if you want people to show up 15 minutes to be ready, let them know. 
let them know and have somebody greet them. That administrator greets them. Hey, we're going to set you up over here to start hitting some balls to get loose. Um, Holly will be with you in a moment. Okay. And then all of a sudden, your administrator is walking out at the hour and going, hey, time. You know, it's time. You didn't get, you, you know, very rarely do I go over my hour session because that's my fault. Right. Another hard thing to do, yeah. <laughs> but well, I'm not good. I don't, deal, I don't deal with the finances. Somebody calls and asks me my hourly rate. I go, call my wife. She'll deal with it. Why? Because I'm, she's not emotionally tagged to it. I am. Someone goes, God, you're way too expensive. Well, I think I'm good at what I do. But she looks at it from a time standpoint because it's ultimately my time. And she can add appointments here or there. But if not, guess what? You know, it's our family. What would you say if, if there was a, a junior clinic tomorrow? It's like one one hour clinic, you know, eight to 15 year olds. Um, you're going to hit a little range, a little short game. What would you, and it's somewhat of a small group, what's a good way to either manage time or give them a, a healthy dose of, kind of like you said, like the, the whole talent thing. Like, guys, we're going to, you have talent, we're going to build on that talent. But how can it, at a very young age, in a brief encounter, maybe it's their first time at, at your club or course or whatever, how can you lay that groundwork and almost coaching expectation if they come back to you they know you're going to hit on these things like whether it's five minutes in the beginning a break halfway through of hey guys we're building these skills let's let's check in on xyz like how can you implement that type of healthy practice or health, healthy clinic well it, 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 it starts with two things planning and communication Okay, so if you're planned and you're like tomorrow on, on Saturday, we've got a junior clinic, we're going to work on chipping and pitching. Well, you more than likely have everybody's contact information. And most kids at age eight or higher have a cell phone. Okay, or they can log into something like Coach Now or something like that, and you can log them in. And that way the parents can be all you have to do is say, Hey, this is what we're doing tomorrow. Looking forward to it. It's going to be challenging. Tomorrow's a tough day. Tomorrow, t- tomorrow's going to be really hard, but it's going to be fun. Okay, so you tell them, Look, I'm going to set up some stations and chipping and pitting. Here's the expectations, but you go through it and you realize that they're not going to remember it. So you, you can easily print out a card and have it sitting there waiting on them. Here's the right. card. Here's how you do it. Here's the expectation. You walk around, you, you teach them and you, but kids today, you have to tell them it's going to be hard. You have to tell them it's going to be challenging. You can make it harder than what you told them, but you can't take an easy thing and make it hard and expect them to understand that. Right. You can say it's going to be hard, but then make it really hard. They're okay with that. So, and, this, and, and you remember, when they tell their parents, they'll say, how was today? It was fine. Okay. How was today? Coach, Coach, he sucks. He wasn't talking to me. He went, they're only going to hear the bad stuff. Okay. They're not going to hear the fact that 97% of it was awesome fun, that, you know, you, you made him feel good about himself. Instead, what you're going to hear is that, you know, you were not there or whatever. Okay. And the reason I say that is we're, we're so conditioned to see the negative that we never really f- airplanes landing in an airport. The news media is not out there capturing that the minute one crashes news media from all over the world's at. Okay. So the norm is, is seen as standard uh, in today's world, a cop does a great job. We don't hear about that. Okay. Um, you know, we only hear the negative. Okay. Um, and that's okay. That's, that's what the, that's the world that we live in. 
So we as a teacher and a coach have to be better than that. We have to be and prepare for them. It's like, look, I'm going to have some skill building area. I'm going to have some drills that are based on confidence. I'm going to have some that are based on challenging. And what I want you to understand is that you should categorize drills based on what their purpose is. Not just, you know, like I have a drill that I, I put eight stations around a hole from five feet. They have to make 24 in a row to complete the drill. Anytime they miss, they start over. That's not a confidence drill. That's a kick you in the shins drill. But it also, it also, I'm a big believer in block practice. Okay. It builds repetition. Okay. But it also creates stress. So it's a little bit of a performance drill. So it has purpose. Every drill I have has purpose. And I want them to know what that purpose is. So, Doc, would you tell us a little bit about this, your Catalyst program, yeah. um, some material that you have, whether it's, you know, books, this, this new program that you've developed, just kind of fill us in on what resources you have. Yeah, the thing, the thing I'm most excited about right now is the Catalyst School, and it started because I was having a conversation with a, a golf pro, and we were having dinner one night, and he said, look, you're around coaches across multiple different sports all the time. And... I want to know what they say. And and I love speaking at the PGA Teaching Coaching Summit. I love speaking at y'all's summits. Michael Breed and I, you know, buddies, and, and he'd bring me in and talk. And, and I always used to tell Mike, I'm like, Mike, why don't you get people from other sports to speak? Well, some of the problems, you can't bring in the basketball players in the January. You can't bring in football. Okay, whatever. But we have to bring in coaches, coach in silos. And it's so amazing in the in the academic center, like Alabama, the gymnastics coach is talking to the golf coach, the football coach is talking to the basketball coach. Okay, they're sharing ideas, they're communicating, right? I put out a tweet a couple months ago. I said, coaches on college campuses, you have experts all over your campus. You may have experts in anthropology or so. Go meet with them before you start bringing in external consultants. You have some of the best on your campus who would love to come over and take a picture with your team with a t-shirt, right? Now, they may not be as polished as a speaker as somebody who comes in with a fancy whatever, but I can guarantee you they probably have a zillion amount much more information than the, the one-hit wonders that are all over our teaching uh, world. So the Catalyst School was, was my way to say, okay, well, you, you want to know what Nick Saban does? I'll share that with you. You want to know what Anthony Grant does? Well, he's the basketball coach of the year this year in college basketball. You want to know what um, you know? my coach did who won five titles in 10 years does? Okay. And I'm going to help golfers. I'm going to help business people, basketball. Basketball coaches want to know what – I had a um, basketball coach ask me the other day in the group, can you connect me with a baseball coach? I got some ideas I want to run through how they do skill development. Right. So the Catalyst School is looking at that saying, we are catalysts for other people's growth. And as coaches, as leaders, as managers, we are their catalyst. Our job is not to become their motivation. Ours is to spark it, to give them the fuel sometimes. So catalyst to me is, I always spell things out and catalyst is being connected. It's being, it's having an assessment plan. It's how you develop talent. It's being accountable as a coach. It's leaving a legacy. It's your philosophy to be a spark 
to take people through chaos. And so if you understand that, the Catalyst School is the main facet is Catalyst School Live, which is four live training. So every week we have a live training um, that I lead on different topics that are related to things that are relevant in the coaching world. And it's on, you know, platforms just like this, where we sit down in live communication, question, answer, discussion. It's under 20 bucks a month. Okay. Um, we're also going to add in and coming up soon called uh, conversations with where I'm going to find people like in PR, social media and all that and come on and talk. And it's just going to be, you know, that show, the James Tipton show inside the actors guild, it's going to be stuff like that. Like, let's just have a conversation. Let me share this conversation with our catalysts because I think every coach should have a PR background. And I think it's important to know what that PR is. Um, and so we're, that's what Catalyst School is. And then we also have a master class. But the thing I'm most excited about, because it's affordable, if 20 bucks is too much for a coach to learn how to be a better catalyst, call me. Listen, I'll make a deal for you. Okay. Do not let $20 a month while you're drinking your Starbucks be a reason why you're not going to do this. Every coach demands something great out of their players. But when I ask coaches, what are you doing? Most coaches are like, well, I'm reading a book. I'm, you're not doing what you're asking your players to do. We have to be setting the stage. We have to be setting the standards of what our, our athletes need to be doing. We have to be better. How would you, you, you wouldn't go to a physician that isn't up on the medical data from the last 20 years. Okay. So as a coach, we have to never give in and, and, the beautiful thing about Catalyst Live, and it's not a sales call, but beautiful thing about it, it's always on demand if you can't make the live tra trainings. And everyone I've ever done is on there. It's amazing. It's, it's like it was this moment that hit us after that conversation that it, it's, it's made me so fired up because of the delivery of it. And the initial response has been ridiculous, but the feedback of what people are learning in it has been so cool. That's awesome. I mean, your, your passion for it is what, like any, any good coach or professor you've had in school, I mean, it starts with the passion and that's, that's clear that you have it. I mean, that's, it kind of fires me up. I'm, I'm definitely, you can look for my registration later today. You got it. Catalystschool.com. Yep. And you go, you know, you can go to my website at brettmccabe.com and find out more information. Listen, if somebody's unhappy with it, they don't like it. I'll refund their money. I mean, I believe in it. Yeah. The, the feedback's been great. And I also take, I mean, I've, we launched it with, you know, I told you that everybody needs critiquers and chat. I launched it with a group of critiquers who went after it. They told me what was good, what wasn't good. What they like what they didn't like. It's, it's informal, but formal, you know, it, it's good. It's good. Exciting. Good work. That's awesome. And I guess to our listeners too, uh, what's your, your Instagram handle there, doctor? Is it just Dr. Brett McCabe? At, at Dr. Brett McCabe. Yep. It's a great page. Follow it. Um, again, I highly recommend the book, The Mind Side Manifesto. It just, I would say to the listeners, no matter if you're in golf, anything, it's, it's a perfect blend of motivation, of a plan, and just key points to kind of walk you through. And for myself, starting my business over the last few years, it's I go back to it, and it, it's awesome. So I, I appreciate that. And again, I can't encourage it enough to the listeners. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Wonderful. Dr. Brett McCabe, thank you. Leighton Smith, thank you very much for co-hosting with us this week on the Elevation Podcast. I appreciate Thanks, it. Yep, yeah, thank you.